Were you told something by a mean kid in the sixth grade and it's stuck? Or maybe an ex-partner made a comment about your body that still replays in your head. Or perhaps a parent said something unkind about your appearance, just a throwaway comment. And decades later, that darn thing is still spinning around in your head like that rainbow wheel thingy on your computer. It doesn't matter that you're extremely grown up and successful and logical nowadays. Those hurtful comments still pop up, even if you know they're not true. These are the emotional scabs we keep picking. I suspect that part of it is due to this good girl conditioning. Be agreeable. Don't make a fuss. Don't be angry. So those memories get pushed down, but they don't go away. So how do we let go of them? I don't know about you, but I'm fed up with carrying this stuff at this stage of my life. Today, I'm in conversation with Sarah Milne Rowe, one of the UK's top performance coaches. She's also a podcaster and is the author of a very successful book called The Shed Method. But we're not talking about Sarah's work or her book today. Instead, we're having a real gritty conversation about the verbal sticks and stones that have been hurled at us and how and why we've carried those for decades. My favorite bit is how we're letting that shiz go. I felt a few inches taller after hearing Sarah's powerful share, and I think you will too. If you're new here, I'm Dr. Mandy Leto, executive coach and recovering perfectionist and overachiever. This show is for anyone whose life looks shiny and successful on the outside, but inside, you never feel quite good enough. For years, you've been chasing the dangling gilded carrot of the next bonus, purchase, promotion, body revamp, relationship, and then for absolutely sure you'll feel good enough. But nothing fills that hole, does it? And you're really tired. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I drop us right into today's conversation where Sarah and I are sharing some of the hurtful and downright shocking things that have been said to us and why they have stuck. Ready? Let's dive in. I was reflecting before our conversation on some of the things that I've been told by other people, and I'm sure there's a much more extensive list, but these are the ones that have stuck. So my boobs are too small. I've been told that my forehead is too big. I have apparently a five head, which is bigger than a forehead. <laughs> um, my eyelashes are too. My eyelashes are too small. I was told that when I went to purchase mascara and face cream. So that one is, was when I was told by a shop assistant with this exquisite French accent. Ah, oh, madame, your eyelashes are very small. And it made it worse somehow because of the guy's French accent too. And then, you know, a bit <laughs> of powder for my rather large forehead. And I didn't even know to start dwelling on my rather large forehead until this person pointed it out. I've also been told I have too much attitude. Mm -hmm. I've been told I'm too selfish. Mm -hmm. I've been told that I'm too white. Interesting. I've been told, do you hide from the sun? I've been told I'm too focused. I'm too mouthy. I'm too uptight. And that I'm too skinny. And I'm sure there's a longer list of those kind of things. But those are the ones that immediately came to memory when I was preparing for this episode. What about you, Sarah? Do you oh, have any, God. any of those okay. kind of things? Let's go. Um, I was told, I'm actually one of my first memories is being at school and a boy turning to me and saying, You'll never be good. Uh, you'll never be any good, Milne, until you grow some tits. 
So that was number one. I thought I didn't even realize that um, I wasn't going to grow any. <laughs> Just suddenly I had this understanding that maybe I wouldn't ever grow any tits, um, that my nose was too big, um, that I'm an ice queen, uh, that the dentist, I know, an ice queen. Nice. Ooh. Um, I remember going to the dentist and him looking at my mouth and saying, well, we've got to get rid of half of those, uh, which is when, you know, those days we had gas and had teeth extractions because your mouth was overcrowded. I've been told I'm too emotional. I've been told I ramble and don't get to the point. Oh, Mandy, how long have you got? They're mm. stored up. And these are the things that tend to stick. And I thought it's not just the two of us, because we had a conversation about this. I actually mm. asked a couple of my girlfriends, I said, is this a phenomenon for you too? And it was the same reaction, like, hey, how long have you got? So one of my girlfriends mentioned that she's very, very proud because she's quite buxom, unlike us, clearly, Sarah. And <laughs> so she had this magnificent push-up bra and she was wearing a v-neck she was on a second date with this guy and he looked down into her cleavage they were standing in a bar i think and he pushed on her breasts the way that somebody might test bread dough you know uh, 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 pushing down and then he looked up at her and he said your boobs are wrinkly oh nice and she froze in that moment she's like is this guy kidding? And we talked about it for a bit. And she said, you know, I immediately internalized this. And I, every time I went on new dates, obviously this guy got turfed out, thankfully, but obviously every time she went on new dates, she was the wrinkly boob thing was going like a, you know, like a teleprompter through her mind all the time. Uh, I had another friend who has this gorgeous mane of dark, black, thick hair. And she's decided she doesn't want to color it anymore because it's a faff and she has so much hair and why not? So she's letting it go silver. And she got a comment from someone who said, oh, so you've stopped looking for a partner then. Hmm. And another friend that I spoke to, she said, oh yeah, I've got one of those stories that she said she used to remember sitting around the dinner table and her father would sing this song and change the words to mock her appearance and indicate that she needed a nose job. And she's now a very successful, almost 39-year-old woman. And she said that song still plays in her mind regularly. And she said it's left an indelible print in how she thinks about herself and her appearance. So I think this is a much larger phenomena. I agree. What's coming up for you. Do you know when you get a song and you can't, it doesn't leave your head and you keep, it's like, and you keep turning it over. I, that's what I think these things are. They just never quite leave you. And it only needs one some, something little to sort of bring it up. And then it's there turning over again, like that song that you can't get out of your head. I don't believe it, but it's still there. And I think that's what's interesting about this is that it's like, why don't you just go away? I was getting curious about why these things take up real estate in our heads, even though, like, mm. as you said, logically, I know that mm. this is all ridiculous. And I know that this is part of growing up with this good girl conditioning and patriarchy yes. and capitalism. Mm. Of course, the guy in the beauty boutique mm. is going to find some scab to pick mm -hmm. because... 
And this is the part that makes me so angry is I fell for it. I bought the mascara and the powder. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But we are bombarded. I mean, we have been bombarded with this good girl messaging for, you know, a few decades, Mandy. So it's, it's, how do we, how do we let it go? Mm. And I think that's what I'm hoping that we'll start to grapple with in this conversation, because some of those things, I think that they can attach to us at a certain point in our lives, because we're swimming in that fish tank, first of all, Mm -hmm. that we need to appear a certain way. And, you know, certainly growing up in, in society and in schools and in our families, I was definitely taught not to be angry right? Anger was not accepted. It was not attractive for a woman, like as mm-hmm. if I cared about mm-hmm. that when I was five yeah. or what have you. Yeah. But it was not to be angry, to be, not to rock the boat. Don't make a scene. Whatever you do, don't make a scene. I mean, yeah. I can, I can remember my father telling me off if I sneezed too loudly. So I had mm. to do this. And even to this day, actually, my family laugh because I do these little sort of like kitten sneezes. <laughs> You know, like they're they're like stifled, and that's because it's been well drilled. Because if I was to sneeze really loudly, I would I would get definitely get uh, told off. It wasn't ladylike; it was yeah. slightly rude. So keep it contained. And I think there is a lot of this boxing in and this containment that comes with this. I mean, I've had so many episodes where we've talked about good girl conditioning, but I like pulling it apart in real time like this particularly when it sticks as we get a little bit older to something that we might already feel slightly apprehensive about, maybe not that confident about. And it got me thinking about a story that I've never told anywhere in public and it's always burrowed in there somewhere. And it's one of these earworms. And I remember when I moved to England to study and I felt, how shall I define this? Ashamed? I felt like I should be ashamed of where I came from because I had this image that these were all of these shiny, clever people. And I grew up, and I can say that now because I'm not ashamed where I've come from now, but at the time I felt like I had to hide that just to be able to fit in. And I think that's part of that good girl conditioning is to fit in, which is different than belonging. But I didn't want to draw attention to the fact that I had grown up in the middle of nowhere in Northern Ontario, milking cows and tending pigs and chickens. And that was just not what came up in those conversations (laughs) while you're drinking port or what, you know, all of I had never eaten a mango. I had never had Indian food. It was just a different world. And I tried to conceal so much of where I came from. So I was constantly consulting search engines and encyclopedias on things I had never heard about. And instead of just like saying, I don't know what that means, I really felt like I needed to hide that. So I was so afraid of being found out as a hick from the sticks. I was terrified of being a hillbilly, you know, and there I was transplanted, like we ain't in Kansas anymore. Here we are in the big leagues and this feeling that I didn't really belong there and someone was going to figure out that I didn't belong there. 
it didn't occur to me that like I got here on hard work yeah. and merit that yeah. just like, mm. and I remember there was a situation right at the beginning when I started there in 1996. And one of the professors that I was working with, who was like really taking me under his wing and was like my person that was going to shepherd me through this. He sent me an email in which he referred to me as Eliza Doolittle. And he referred to himself as Professor Higgins. You are joking. (laughs) And I had to actually go to the student center and use the (laughs) dial-up modem. To look it up? To look it up because I didn't know what that meant. And then I remember sitting there reading that screen, not really being able to believe what I was reading and thinking he means this as a compliment, right? And I think in his own deluded way, he did mean it as a compliment. Like, look at him, the big swinging dick taking this little, you know, girl from the sticks under his wing and and he's going to transform her. But that never, ever left me while I was there and while I went into jobs. And it's still there because I was so scared of being perceived as this hick from the sticks. And I thought, oh, I'm not doing a very good job concealing it. Mm. Do you still have that? Does that still rise? And, it wish, and how does that rise now for you? I think the way that it's shape-shifted over time is still the feeling that I don't quite belong, that I'm in rooms that I shouldn't be in. And then there's this thing that there are people who are way smarter than me, that I'm, I'm out of my own league here. I'm, you know, I, that saying when you, when I was small, like know your place. Yeah. Ooh, I don't know my place here. And different little events throughout my time doing my doctorate. I remember once I was at Trinity College with a professor from there and we were at the high table for lunch and I took a banana for dessert and I peeled the banana and I ate the banana and he was like tutting and it's like, and he said, oh, that's so refreshing that you do that. And I thought, is that a backhanded compliment? He said, we (laughs) would use a knife and fork for that. What? And I wished a trap door would open and just like swallow me up. Mm. So there was so many situations. I didn't know which way to pass the port. I didn't know which knives and forks to use. And so I learned really, really quickly, but this still shows up as my fear of not knowing the rules, my fear of looking like the person who doesn't get it. And I've over torqued big time to become elegant and I've bought designer clothes and I've read etiquette books and just to try to erase that part of me because I used to think it was bad or wrong. Mm. And have you, well, we'll come to this, but I'm, I'm really interested in how we let those bits of us back out to play. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a really good question. I don't, even know for sure what that could look like aside from it being maybe a little bit more playful. And I think I've tried to be in more ownership of that part of me that grew up on a farm in the States and understanding that it gives me a perspective. It gives me 
even some really gritty language and stories that other people didn't have. And it's actually something that I'm, it's a great question because I'm working on really owning this part of me now that I can be the both end. I don't have to be, you know, just this very charming, highly educated. Like I can also be gritty and, you know, I know how to play darts and I know how to shovel cow shit and I know how to milk cows and I know how to, (laughs) you know, I know how to do all of this stuff. But that was the one, you know, aside from, I, I still do think about, I scrutinize my forehead in those, you know, in <laughs> hotels where you have those illuminated yeah. mirrors. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Uh, but I think that was one of the stories that really, really stayed with me because it was linked to a, a deep insecurity that I already had. So yes, it, it was yeah. already there. Yeah. It's that, almost like that's found out they sniff it out sometimes I think well that's how it feels anyway I think you know I feel am I displaying something here that I wish was hidden which I thought was hidden but actually it's quite loud and it's being seen and it's being noticed and it's being now picked apart or it's been taken advantage of so Mandy when you when you ask me if I could what this whole question of I think you you put it as these scabs that we keep on picking for ourselves unhelpfully. I think I said to you, let let me sleep on it and see what I wake up with in the morning. And actually, I woke up with a very clear scab that, that happened to me between both my marriages. And it's funny, actually, because I hadn't actually talked this out loud. I don't think I've ever talked this out loud. So I'm talking it out loud to you now. But actually, your question brought it very much to the surface. So in between marriages, I had a very, I was going to say, sort of slightly tumultuous relationship that had extreme highs and extreme lows with this guy for on and off for about five years. And we lived together for about one and a half years. And during our time when we lived together, he, he said he had a job in the evening, but I didn't need to know where that was. And I remember thinking... No, I, I don't need to know that. Why, why would I need to know that? I'm, it was a sort of implicit trust thing. Anyway, so anyway, this went on. And um, on a one New Year's Eve, we were together and he said, I've got something to tell you. And he said, I've got a child with someone else. And those evenings when I said I was going to work somewhere else, I actually was putting this child, helping this child to bed. And... I was so shocked and so th- and felt so sick, actually. I mean, I, I really felt like I was going to vomit. He then looked at me and he said, but Sarah, I know that you will be big enough to forgive me. And that's the sentence that woke up with me after you posed that question, Mandy, because I think that statement of you will be big enough. Yes, I thought I will be big enough. Yes, I need to be big enough. I'm, I'm going to be big enough. This is, a, this is a challenging situation for both of us, but I'm going to be big enough. And I did try to be big enough. So I, you know, I met this child. I, I lived with this situation that I felt I'd had nothing to do with. And ultimately, I got to the point where I couldn't. I wasn't big enough and I chose not to be big enough. But what's interesting is that statement to myself of, am I big enough? Can I deal with this? Am I going to be strong enough? Can I, you know, it has sort of remained with me a lot through lots of the decisions and choices that I've made in my life. And 
I think there comes a point where, well, there did come a point and there, and it's been an ongoing thing where I was actually, that's not my responsibility to be big enough. Fuck it, I don't want to be big enough. Actually, there are times when I don't want to be big enough and that's not my stuff to own or rise to. And that, that I think, was my scab. And I, you know, I'm still dealing with it. I, I mean, not, not dealing with that specific issue, but I think that scab of... Do I need to, you know, what? how can I rise above this? As opposed to actually being in it and feeling it and being able to share it and, and you know, be out with it, you know, to, to actually feel it properly. Suddenly it felt like it was my responsibility to deal with this situation, which was remarkable, actually, when I think back on it. I think, how, how did he manage that? But he did for a while. Whew. Thank you for sharing that here. Well, thank you for inviting me to say it, actually. There's something very um, cathartic about, I mean, this is years ago, Mandy, right? This is, this is not recent. I'm, you know, I've got kids in their 20s and a, a very lovely marriage, but it's to your point about these things that sit inside. And, and it's only through being asked these sorts of questions that you start to understand the power they, they unnecessarily have over oneself. Or as you say, take up, take up room if you aren't careful. And I wish, you know, in hindsight that I had owned the story, owned the power to say, do you know what? You can have that back. That's not mine to have. I don't need to be big enough. It was the way in which that question was phrased. Yes. That made it such a hot potato to pass to you because should you decline that request, it would mean something about you in the way that that question was set up. Absolutely. And I took it on. Yeah. We were talking in the proverbial green room before this of this <laughs> same professor who likened himself to Professor Higgins and me to Eliza Doolittle that at one stage of my work together with him, he had suggested I apply for a scholarship with an organization he was associated with. And I won that scholarship. And hot on the heels of that, he suggested that I release some of my pent up stresses of being a PhD student, that I release those with him physically. Oh, and the timing was like such a setup. And mm -hmm. I internalized all of that, like, should I not have applied for that scholarship? Did I send a message somehow that I was open to this? Is this the way it's supposed to go here? Like, I remember I ain't in Kansas anymore. So I don't like, I knew instinctively that this was not right, but it was a very difficult thing. All of that not enoughness came up in that moment because I was supposed to rise to that occasion to show gratitude, right? To show yeah. gratitude for. <laughs> so again, like the, the impact of that was me taking all of that on myself. And this was, this has never left me. I've never spoken about this. Mm. I repeatedly check online to see if this person is still alive so that I would have some sort of permission to speak about this. And all of a sudden I thought, well, F that, yeah. because this is the insidious part of it too, is why when something has been done to us, 
are we then the keepers of, of that secret yeah. to protect this person? So on reflection, I think it's less that I was trying to protect that person and more that I had no idea what to do with that situation. And therefore, I went into the freeze. You know the freeze? Don't make a scene, smooth it over, be the bigger person who can handle it all. Of course, I felt confused and angry on the inside, but at the time I had no tools to express that this was not okay. And it's tricky when there's a power differential. So I smoothed things over and with diplomacy, tried to navigate my way through so that my rejection of him wouldn't feel awkward for him. Yeah. So I took on the task of making it okay for him. And I know, I know, if you're listening and shaking your head, I'm trying to give that younger part of myself so much darn compassion because she did the best that she could with the tools that she had available. Let's also not forget that that part of the good girl conditioning relies on not talking about this stuff, right? Push it down, keep moving on. And when I was talking about it with Sarah, we both grew up hearing, we don't show our dirty laundry in public, right? Which always serves the wrongdoer. And that shame gets neatly reallocated on the person who's received that situation or those unkind words or that awkward scenario. I don't know about you, but I'm no longer available for carrying other people's stuff. This podcast is all about breaking habits of self-abandonment and learning to become good advocates for ourselves. It's a long-term strategy, getting onto this path of self-honoring and boundary setting and being in our courage. And you know, I always like to offer you a tool or a tip or an insight on whatever, whatever we're discussing. So Sarah and I are about to play with the first thought, second thought tool from Anna Mather's episode. Check that one out if you haven't already. Anna is brilliant. So Sarah and I are about to get real on how we're trying to heal ourselves from those hurtful words that have overstayed their welcome. I'm glad you mentioned the first thought. Second thought, this is something that I was talking about with Anna Mather in one of the mm. previous episodes where a lot of these initial thoughts that come up, they're really dyed in the wool for us. They may be these responses that we'll never get rid of. They might be extremely critical. And the thing with a lot of this, this type of good girl conditioning is we can appear pleasant, passive, agreeable on the outside, but inside, whoo, we can be vicious to ourselves. And there can be doubt, self-doubt, self-flagellation. And there's a complete, at least for me, I don't know what your experience was, but I didn't trust myself. So in, if I was in a power differential situation with say a supervisor or a boss or someone else who must know better because I was the hick from the sticks and this was the big leagues, it was this way of not trusting my own instincts, not trusting my own sense of self, maybe because that's part of being compliant with the, with the good girl, yeah. right? You, you give yeah. your power away. So often these first thoughts that we have are not necessarily trustworthy and they're just old conditioning. But what Anna was saying is that the second thought is often much more wise and kind and maybe a bit seasoned, maybe more woke, maybe more thoughtful, maybe more self-trusting. 
But as you say, they often come much later. So there's like a massive canyon of time between the event and the thing happening. Yeah. So in a way, what we're saying is we've got to be smarter at recognizing the old patterns, the old reactions that we've practice probably much more unconsciously than we're aware, then we get this reaction, then we've got to find, somehow invite the second thought to come straight in on the back of it earlier, yeah. you know, like, and how do we do that? How do we have, I mean, I think just having this conversation is useful, isn't it? Because it just starts make, making you think, well, how, how do I, what, what's, so I'm interested in this whole thing about, I didn't, we did, I didn't trust, the hick from the sticks didn't trust what? That she was good enough okay, to be here, that she was worthy, that she was smart enough. The whole legacy of my time being at university there, I still don't fully know if I got in on my own merit. Mm-hmm. There's a part of me that believes mm-hmm. it or whether or not when I went to meet him, he was already pre-thinking, oh, this is a vulnerable person that I can, and if, you know, I can't be that jaded and cynical, but it's, it's, it's muddied the whole experience for me. And I wish I didn't have to hold that. I wish it could have, I could have been a clean experience for me Yeah. of all of that residue that I didn't feel uh, adept and able to hold at yeah. the time. So what about you? I mean, when, when you have a second thought about that, that situation had to be big enough to hold this. Well, it's so interesting, just reflecting on it now. What was I fearing by not being big enough? If, for example, I'd said, do you know what? No, I'm not big enough. I don't want it. What was I fearing would happen in that moment? It's a it's a great question. I suppose I must have thought that, I think there was something about having left a marriage, that the pressure I was putting on myself to make the next relationship be worthy of leaving a marriage. I don't know. I mean, that's the first thought. That's a thought that, I mean, I've not said out loud either, but maybe that was the fear that, you know, to, to leave something, then the second thing has to work. So I've got to be big enough to deal with this. Otherwise, what does it say about what I've done before? So it's good to do with shame. Where do we go from here once we start undoing the compression and deciding I don't want to be in that narrative anymore? I was imagining whilst you were speaking, if I were taken back in time to that moment what would I really want? What would I say now? You know, if I was to unleash the power, actually, not the bad girl, but if I was to unleash the power of the feeling that sat underneath the good girl response, what would come out? And, you know, I, I now they're all stacking up, little different episodes all the way through my life, all stacking up, waiting for that opportunity, right? But, you know, I think it would be it would be a very cathartic exercise for me in a way to say, what, what would I, what would I want to say in that situation? So I think there is something about power, the power of the feeling. If we were to reverse the good girl and went into, fuck off. Helen Mirren says that, doesn't she? There was a, yes. I think it was a meme, that something of her yes. saying, we need to learn how to say fuck off way more yeah. often. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of size behind actually. Also the cathartic nature of the work of the actual sound in your mouth of fuck off. You know, there's something in the actual, I mean, I get, I, it feels a really good thing to say to me that, that phrase, Mm -hmm. you know, much more than any other swear word that, that does something where it's very releasing. (laughs) (laughs) Long time listeners will know that I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to research. 
I had to investigate the science bits around this. So it turns out Sarah's right. Dr. Richard Stevens of Keele University links using monosyllabic expletives to triggering adrenaline and increasing your heart rate. Apparently it can even increase pain tolerance. What makes this interesting in my discussion with Sarah is that it feels like a reclaiming of boundary setting energy, of that firm declaration that no, this is not acceptable and you feel it on a bodily level. So does that mean that we're advocating getting your potty mouth on? Well, maybe if that's your jam, but mostly I've been playing with it as an energy. So when I have that fuck off feeling in my body, it's indicating that a boundary fail has taken place. So even if those words never pass my lips in that moment, it's an indication that something isn't right. And I can then investigate what I'm going to do about that. It's starting to get back in touch with that feeling that has been pushed down for all those years as part of the good girl conditioning. So I drop us back into the conversation where Sarah and I are playing with alternatives to this good girl stuff. It's not the bad girl. I don't want to show up with girl energy. I want to own my woman power. So let's get back to me and Sarah figuring this out in real time. What's the alternative? Bad girl doesn't feel like an alternative for me. It feels too far-fetched. So something like sovereign woman feels good to me. Free woman came up for me. Mm. A free woman not bound by any rules or oughts or shoulds. Yeah. What would the free woman in me say? What does the free woman in me want right now? That feels very liberating to me, actually. That's just that word. You know, we, and, you know we, we've had this conversation around the idea of being alive. There's something about feeling alive to what's what's actually being given to you as opposed to trying to work out very quickly what I need to say in this moment to be liked. Mm-hmm. And to stay contained. And to stay well. contained and to stay like, I can't, I can't be blamed in some way. And that's the only power that's available to the good girl is first of all, compliance. But the only hot little button there is the righteousness of compliance and taking the moral high road. That's what's available. And the thing is, it just isn't enough anymore. And this is the other play on words with this podcast. Enough, enough already, (laughs) enough. Mm -hmm. So what would it feel like? And I don't think we can make a prescription for listeners, but what would it feel like if you're listening and you want to be a free woman, you want to be a free man, you want to be a free, however you gender identify or don't identify, what would that feel like? And I'm curious what's coming up for you as we bring this to a close. Well, it's taken me straight back to my body, actually. What I have learned about the work that we do is the power of the body. And if I can go nowhere else, go there and take it out of my head, because I think the body's brilliant. And I think maybe that is the thing. You know, if if we if we're in that moment of fuck, I've got only these two choices to play the high road, you know, or to or to comply. What if we went deeper down in our body? What else would our body say? Because I think we've got it offers our body offers us a much richer and broader vocabulary. So that's what's coming up for me. 
is if we can't sort it out up here, and I'm pointing to my head as I'm talking to you, um, you know, what else can we call on to give us some truth to be free? And I think there's so much richness and value and wisdom that goes further back than our upbringing. You know, it's primeval wisdom we have in our bodies and in ourselves. If we could find ways of returning to that first as a second thought. Sarah, I ask every guest to leave a brick of wisdom, something that may have jiggled loose in this conversation that you want to leave a listener with now that they've come on this journey of reveals with us today. What do you want to leave with someone listening? I want to leave the notion that we can reclaim the energy that we have given away, that we can fill that debt that we've let build up in our body and let it come back. And it doesn't matter where you are. I think, Mandy, we could sit, I could sit in a quiet space and visualize all the energy I want back that I have left behind or given away for nothing. And I now need it back. And I'm going to see it come flying through the air. I'm going to see it travel across the oceans and I'm going to receive it deeply back in my body as a source of my future power. I'm going to add a little brick of wisdom to that too while we're at it. That got me thinking about how we can also return unwanted energies to sender. Yes. Even in real that. time, right? Yes. Somebody's some giving some variation of, oh, you're big enough to hold that. You can return that energy to sender in the heat yeah. of the moment, yeah. right? You can return criticism, unwanted feedback, unwanted comments, yep. comments about some your body about what you're wearing about your performance that those things can all be returned to sender when we are embodying that free woman whatever that looks like for you listening we can reclaim our energies like sarah said and we can also return that shit to sender yeah love that So here's a couple of things you can practice saying if you're confronted with a comment that feels hurtful or off, instead of just pushing it down and then letting it spin and spin and spin in your head at three o'clock in the morning. These are from Carolyn Leaf's Instagram page. I'll do a link in the show notes. So here's one thing you could say. I want to make sure that I'm not making assumptions about what you said. Can you clarify? Or I love this one too. That felt hurtful. What did you actually mean by that comment? I can imagine using that on the beauty boutique guy who said I had a five head or my friend who had the comment about the wrinkly boobs. She could have used that one too. And here's one of my own interventions. This doesn't feel comfortable for me. I'm going to step away and reflect on this situation and come back to you. If you have found today's conversation useful, please share it with somebody who needs it. And I'd be incredibly grateful if you'd give me an Apple podcast review. It helps more people like you find the show. If you're not sure how to do that, because I've had a lot of people say, I really want to do a review for you, but I have no idea. Please email my team at hello at mandyleto.com. That's hello at M-A-N-D-Y-L-E-H-T-O.com. They are here to help you. There's no such thing as a dumb question. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing so generously today. Isn't she brilliant, folks? All of Sarah's details will be in the show notes, including the link to her own podcast, Better Under Pressure. 
As ever, thank you so much for listening. Let's do this all again in two weeks.